Before we get started, I need to thank a new Patreon patron. Thank you, Jen Sachs, for becoming a patron of the original cast. And you've joined. It's such a wonderful time. Here we are in the year of Sondheim, and we've added to the program. Not only are we covering all of the Stephen Sondheim musical movies, pretty much all of them, with our wonderful guests, that's a guarantee, but we've also added live stream recordings. We are live streaming the recordings of the original cast of the movies now, and if you are a patron at the $3 level or higher, you can attend a live stream recording of the original cast of the movies. But of course, all patrons at all levels gain access to the original cast of the movies, our bonus monthly podcast where we talk about movie musicals. This has been the year of Sondheim. We are almost finished with it. Next year, haven't quite figured out the theme yet. We're thinking... I'm thinking sequels and biopics at this point. I think that's what it's going to be, but I haven't quite figured it out yet. Anyway, go to patreon.com slash originalcastpod to become a patron of the original cast, support things that you love, and gain access to the original cast of the movies. All right, here's the show. Whenever my world falls apart, I never lose hope or lose heart. Whatever the form of the storm that may brew, not with you to lean on, darlings, you. Hello and welcome to The Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. I'm Patrick Flynn. My guest today is a composer, lyricist, librettist, musical director, and educator. It's Katya Stanislavskaya, everybody. Thanks for having me. Frequent listeners may remember we performed a sketch of of Katya's <laughs> several weeks ago with Kevin David Thomas and, and Casey Aaron Clark. Sondheim brings Miller's son to the new song workshop, which was great. Still a big fan of that. Uh, and gave me the chance to play Stephen Sondheim, which I'm never going to get again, so that was good. And though I'm sure he'll come up in our conversation, we're not just here to talk about Stephen Sondheim. You're here to talk about... The last five years. Jamie is over and Jamie is gone. Jamie's decided it's time to move on. Jamie has new dreams he's building upon And I'm still hurting How did the last five years come into your life? So I, to be honest, it didn't start as the cast recording. It actually started as a live performance. Um, I was a graduate student. I was a piano accompanying and chamber music major in Philadelphia, Temple University. And I also secretly accompanied for a musical theater class and secretly because nobody condoned it in my classical training. (laughs) So people used to get mad at me when I was in tech week and, you know, not practicing so much with my classical repertoire. So it was like a big secret. And so that class and I went on a field trip to see the last five years Uh, at a Philadelphia theater, which is now the Philadelphia Theater Company, back when it was a lot smaller. Mm -hmm. And I only knew one song, which was still hurting, which I assumed was somewhere at the end of the show. And then we went to see the production, and it was the first song. And that was very intriguing. (laughs) And anyway, about 90 minutes later, I came out of there just drenched in tears. And I went back to campus, and I went to a practice room, and I thought, maybe I could write a song. And that's where it all began. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah, I never wrote anything before. I was a classical pianist. Um, and I was doing musicals as a music director in community theaters and high schools. 
but everything seemed really unattainable, such as Sondheim mm -hmm. and Rodgers and Hammerstein and all these people. And something about Jason Robert Brown's songs, uh, not that I write in his style at all, but something about it just was so viscerally, it just hit me so hard at age 23 that I thought maybe I could write a song. And so I wrote the first something that day. Well, I think that most people would find Jason Robert Brown's music to also be hard to, you know, parse and uh, and, uh, and obtain. So I wonder how much of it is, is is your, you know, sort of classical pianist training would make that. Was it, do you think that was part of it? Or is it, do you have any idea what it was about the score that sort of like got, got into you that way? No, I think you're right. Um, I love his music and lyrics for the same reason that I like Sondheim, even though it's a little strange to put them in the same sentence, but they're both very complex mm -hmm. and both lyrically and musically. And so someone coming from uh, classical music, I don't really respond so much to songs that have three or four chords in them that you could express with chord changes. Mm -hmm. So that that's what I love about both of these writers. Have you always been playing music ever since you were very young? I mean, that's it's such interesting to me that you would start compo you know, composing or writing at, at 23 if, if you've been playing music for long enough to be, you know, music directing, community theater and, and moonlighting and accompanying classes and things like well, that. Well, I, I was born in the Soviet Union and I lived there until I was 12. And so I heard that musicals were a thing. I remember my parents telling me that uh, Jesus Christ Superstar was actually banned in the Soviet Union because oh, wow. it was about Jesus and, you know, there was no religion. Sure. So, of course, they owned a record and listened to it <laughs> because it was cool. <laughs> yes. And so I heard about Fiddler on the Roof, but because I didn't speak English, it wasn't really part of my life. And I was on this very classical track, including when I was 23. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't really think about jobs and money. I just thought about, am I going to get this degree and then that degree? And then I don't know what's going to happen. And so, and the other part was English is my second language. And it took many years to be able to make jokes and refer to pop culture. Mm -hmm. And so writing, I was never interested in writing programmatic music, like a sonata or a symphony. And I have great admiration for people who can do that because it's like, what's the story? What, what, what are you writing about? It never occurred to me that I would have command of English enough to do this. So by 23, I was here for about 10 years. I thought, huh, maybe mm -hmm. what I really want to do is write songs. And so that, that album, you know, that performance and then that album really kind of put me on track. Yeah, it was, I have to say, I mean, this was, I always listened to the album several times before I talked to the guest, but this one I didn't have to. I did anyway because I'm, I'm a diligent host. But I, I, you know, I've listened to this recording a thousand times. It's one of my, easily one of my ten favorite musicals, and I still, I find now because I don't listen to it as much as I used to. When I do listen to it, I get pleasantly surprised by it still, which is interesting because I know. You know, I know every single second of this show, but I still find things when I'm half listening that I didn't expect. It's such mm. an intricately, it's mainly in the orchestration. I find them, that's something repeated listening really gives to me um, as mo more of an untrained amateur musician. I f orchestrations take a lot longer for me to hear, to really parse. And this is, I think... Or in in the arrangements, very deceptively simple, 
and kind of stripped down with you know piano and a small string section and it really the more you listen to it the more you hear kind of the in the the theme he sort of builds all the show around hidden in the orchestration at key moments of emotional heighten and sort of goes oh that's why that song affects me that much that's why that kind of that kind of grabs me there's so much to listen to in this show it's so deep that actually might have been one of the first things i noticed because again i was a chamber music major so that was my life at the time Mm -hmm. was working in small ensembles and i love strings and the fact that this you know i know the film version had percussion in it which almost kind of disappointed me because yes. I really loved how we didn't have percussion yes. in the original. Very much agree. Yes. Um, and my husband is a drummer and he feels the same way as <laughs> oh, I Oh, good. Do. Okay, good. As much as he would want to play the show. Sure. He, you know, it doesn't need but we it. agree it on this. Yeah. It doesn't need it doesn't, Yeah, because no. the guitar and the string writing and the piano and the bass, I just loved that it. it was chamber music. But it was also jazz and rock and and something other that I'd never heard before. I'm about to music direct songs for a new world at the university where I work. And I've played at least half of these songs many times in auditions and in classes. And every time it feels like sight reading, even though I had practiced. So it's it's kind of like with classical music. It leaves your fingers, Mm -hmm. except it's not my idiom. Um, I was just talking to a fellow music director. We're both classically trained and... This music, we love it, but it is hard for us. What's hard? So, what's hard about it for from a classical training standpoint? What makes it? So There's tricky? something about the coordination of the two hands that's very different mm. than if you play a piece, you know, written for piano in the Romantic period or the classical period or something like that. Just the two hands are almost two different instruments in some of the songs. Mm. And you have to really... And you also can't rely on the pedal. And he even writes sometimes um, in his vocal selections books and mm-hmm. liner notes, like, lay off the pedal. You know, this has a rock sensibility. This is not a Debussy. <laughs> this is me. <laughs> and so just like really relying on your own rhythm and that coordination is what makes it challenging. Well, that's another reason I think you mentioned the rhythm. That's another reason I think you don't need drums on this. I mean, the rhythm's sort of in the right. piano. The piano is a percussive instrument in this and in Songs for a New World score. Right. It's yeah. it's in the percussion section of an orchestra, if anything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's, he. you know, you mean you hit the damn yeah. thing. And he really does in those two recordings. Right. So you hear it. He plays, he plays in a, it, it's funny, his style of, of piano playing, because he doesn't bang Exactly, like a lot of rock musicians would, you know, use you who would sit and like really bang on the piano. But he does play it with a great deal of gusto and 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 vim, and it's a it's a hard nobody. It's another thing, like nobody quite plays the piano the way he does, which explains why he plays the piano so much in his scores and his recordings. One of the other things I, I was thinking, why did it appeal so much to me in my early twenties? But I think part of it is, uh, unlike a Jerome Kern song or a song with a Hammerstein lyric, it's very verbose. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like Gilmore Girls for mm-hmm. <laughs> of musicals. Yeah. And, you know, now that I'm older, even as a writer, I try to be more economical. But when you're young, you just want to let it all oh, yeah. come out. You want to totally overwrite it and say it all and say it with a lot of energy, even when it's heartfelt even when it's a deeply emotional song. And I think that's why young people like it. And, you know, when you like something when you're young, you, you still like it 20 years later, Yes, is what I find. Absolutely. I also, I just wanted to mention from my perspective, um, 
there's three words in the show from different songs that just made my eyes light up every oh, time I heard it. Um, because, so, you know, I, I ran away as a refugee from the Soviet Union with my family because we're Jewish and my parents didn't even tell me that I was Jewish till I was 11 uh, out of fear for my safety. Mm. So it was like a big revelation to me at that age. And in the show, he says, Taurus. And mm-hmm. I recognized it because my grandparents say it. Don't we get to be happy, Kathy? At some point down the line, don't we get to relax without some new Taurus to push me yet further from you? And now I get to explain it to my students. You know, some of them thought it was tourist, like without some new tourist to bring me out further from you, which makes no, <laughs> no sense. No sense at all, no. And then Shiksa, and, you know, some people object to that, but mm-hmm. I just love that there was a whole song with the word Shiksa in the title. And it's like, I grew up with that word, and we whispered it because it's kind of offensive. Mm-hmm. And now it's in a song, and that's so cool. <laughs> if you had a tattoo, that wouldn't matter. If you had a shaved head, that'd be cool. If you came from Spain or Japan or the back of a van, just as long as you're not from Hebrew school, I'd say now I'm getting somewhere. I'm finally breaking through. I say, hey, hey, Shiksa goddess, I've been waiting for someone like you. And then at some point in the Shmuel song, they say a girl from Odessa, and I'm a girl from Odessa. Like, I'm from Odessa, Ukraine. And that very dress, so the paper swore, was the dress a girl in Odessa wore on the day she promised forevermore to love a young man named Shmuel, who only one day before had knocked at her kitchen door. And so that really, you know, in addition to the music and and all the tears and all the angst, (laughs) those three words like really sealed the deal for me for loving this musical. Oh, wow. That is, I will, I will admit to being, being the goyim that I am that, uh, yes, Soros, (laughs) Soros took me a long time to figure. I knew it wasn't Taurus in my defense in my 20s. (laughs) Well, you're you're already ahead. (laughs) There we go. But I kept thinking, I kept I, I kept thinking it was, he was like, I'm like, oh, he must have swallowed the word. And I just didn't hear it. And then it wasn't until I got the vocal selections and went, oh, I don't know what that is. And then I, luckily with the internet, was able to look it up. I knew Mishagas, but I didn't know Soros. Well, it's interesting about Yiddish. Um, I actually, for a completely separate project, got to interview Sheldon Harnick a couple of years ago oh, in his gosh. apartment. I know, and I was writing an article about representation of foreigners in musical theater, and Uh so somebody hooked me up with an invite to his house, and so I asked him, you know, were you afraid that people who are not Jewish won't understand certain things in some of your shows, like Fiddler or Mm -hmm. Fiorello, and he said, yeah, we were very careful if we used the Yiddish word that we would immediately translate it, such as, you know, to life, to life, l'chaim, 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 to life. In case you don't know, there it is. And the fact that Jason Arbor Brown in the late 90s or early 2000s, he just said source and he said shiksa and he didn't explain it. Mm -hmm. And he was kind of like, Either he thinks this is so much part of the culture that he doesn't have to explain it, or he said, look it up. Yeah. I'm going to just say it, because that's what my character says. And it is also the thing of, it's not important 
that everyone understand every single word, every single minute of the song. It is a real commitment to the philosophy of like, well, the music's getting across the emotion. And like you say, this show is verbose and, and lyrically very, very dense. And by that point, when we, we get to um, If I Didn't Believe in You, which is without question my favorite song in the show, you are, you're so, I think your ear is tuned to it. And I think his impression would be like, well, you either get it or you don't. And like you say, it doesn't really matter if you miss that one word. Um, cause it is absolutely the right word. He's used enough, you know, Yiddish colloquialisms throughout that that is something he would absolutely say, especially in, which is also, it accurately describes what they're going through. <laughs> so it's the right word in addition to being good for the character. So I think that's, yeah, I think Shiksa was, gosh, I certainly had heard that word before I heard this show, at least enough to know. I don't think I really fully understood the connotation of it and how like silly and like you say, you know, sort of whispery offensive that 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 song can be to some people. Um, But it was a word I was certainly familiar with. And yeah, so and he also says in that I think also in Shmuel's song, he does say if Shmuel had been a sweet Goyesha maid, he would look like and I got that. (laughs) Yes, that's right. Yeah. Like, I get that. I get that. There's something I love about Yiddish is that. First of all, it's very hard to translate. There's no yes. equivalent. You know, I speak English and Russian. There's never quite an equivalent for any of the Yiddish words. But also, I feel like the offensiveness is always a little bit tempered by this kind of painful humor. Mm-hmm. And so I actually, when he does use those Yiddish words, it works really well. Like with Shiksa Goddess, it's saying like the deliciously forbidden wrong thing that I must have. <laughs> And even if you don't know the word in the beginning of the song, I think you know it by the end. Yeah. And then Soros, also, it's not like saying bullshit. Like, bullshit sounds harsh. Yeah. But he says, without some new Soros, and that kind of gives me, at that point, hope for the relationship. Like, look, he's mm. he's getting into Yiddish. Mm-hmm. I think it's softening. I think maybe they, they might make it. I mean, you know, unfortunately, because the show is, you know, because of the structure, you know that they break they don't up. don't make it, no. <laughs> but at that moment, you kind of forget and think like, oh, look, he's calming down a little bit, you know. So when you when you first saw the show, you only knew the one song. So I think this yeah. is actually good. Can you give our, for those listeners who don't know, and I can't <laughs> imagine there's any of them, but somebody might be out there being like, what is this show about? Could you give a quick plot synopsis or, or conceit synopsis of, of uh, the last try. five years? Yeah. <laughs> It's like telling the plot of Memento. <laughs> it is, actually. Yeah, um, it's very much so. A little bit. Yeah. So, basically, it's about a couple and the last five years of their lives, which starts with their first meeting and ends with their divorce. But the woman tells the story from the end to the beginning, and the man tells, tells the story from the beginning to the end. So even though you know the ending in the beginning, when you get to the final song, which for her is the first date and for him is the, you know, I closed our joint bank account. Yeah. It is so powerful. Yes. <laughs> it yeah, is so heartbreaking. It just murders you. And so it's not the first show like that because Merrily We Roll Along, which some people absolutely hate, but I'm not one of them. <laughs> Merrily We Roll Along try to do that where the whole thing was backwards and you see jaded people in the beginning and very innocent and hopeful people at the end but this show takes it a step further because it has the stories going both ways Mm -hmm. so that's really ambitious 
But, you know, even though I started by seeing it, people don't need to see it. That's one of the reasons I love the cast recording. Mm -hmm. You don't need to see it. You can have a show in your head. Everything is there, I, I think, on the recording. Mm -hmm. Maybe a few lines are missing, but, but it's mostly all there. Yeah, there's a couple little... I've seen. I've never seen the show live. I've seen video of uh, of it, and there are a couple like intro so songs have intro lines, and there's a few little lead in bits um, to sort of ground the scenes for a minute. But I mean, it's also just not only are the two characters crossing each other, but they they never really interact except when they hit in the middle when they actually get married, which is I think right. is what makes the show. I think that's the show's secret weapon is that they have a moment where they cross. And you get where they're yeah. at, where they're at the same point, which is also their happiest moment in the whole show, which is beautiful and perfect and great that they like get to they get to have a happy moment together. So right in the middle, you get as an audience member kind of a break from like how sad Kathy is, and then Kathy's not going to be sad for the rest of the show. She's going to write, and then we're going to watch. We're going to. We're gonna watch him just slowly fitter you know, Jamie get get worse and worse yeah. and worse. Um, yeah, <laughs> and it, but it gives you that break because otherwise, I mean, the first half, Kathy's first half is relentless to me. Like going from uh, still, still hurting, hurting to to um, see I'm smiling, which is just like yeah. The, the the line that I don't know why this line kills me every single time, but ever I mean this is not an exaggeration that every time I listen to the show, when that song is you know two thirds of the way in and they're going to start fighting, and she says, "You know what makes me crazy? I'm sorry. Can I say this? You know that what makes me phrase of that fight for some reason like that just breaks me in that moment of like oh this is because it, it's so real. It is so people real. Really say that." It's like, let, let me just be honest yeah. with you. And then all this shit pours out. It's one of and those she's not moments. wrong. I think that's one of the smartest things about the show is, and I think I've said this before about the show, that I, I think that JRB, since it is, I mean, he can deny it all day if he wants to, and he does, <laughs> which for legal reasons is a smart idea, um, that the show is in right. any way autobiographical. <laughs> When it is, I don't know how detailed autobiographical it is, but it is certainly drawn from the experience of his first marriage. Uh, I think that's, yeah, that's yeah. common knowledge, I'm sure. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, I, I think that he goes in an effort maybe to not act like he's painting Jamie in too strong a light, goes a little hard at how bad of a guy Jamie is in the second half of the show, like almost a little too hard sometimes. But... I, I like the fact that Kathy is not wrong in any of her accusations against Jamie. When she's like, she knows what's going on. He's going back to this party because he likes all the attention and the affection. And there's girls there who like him and all that. And it's, you know, he's, he's, and she's, she's got him dead to rights in that moment. She's not, you know, she's not paranoid. She's not hysterical. Yeah. All of Kathy's like negative qualities, like, seem to only hurt her. She has a very, like, self-esteem issues and things like that, and they seem to pile up on her. But she's never wrong about Jamie. 
<laughs> and you don't know that when you first hear CM yeah. smiling, I, you know, when I first heard it, I thought, oh, she's, she's one of those people. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, when he has, you know, spoiler alert, when he has the affair, yeah. you're like, oh, well, yeah. so what came first, the chicken or the egg? Did mm-hmm. she, did it become a self-fulfilling prophecy or was it always going to happen? Because he just can't get enough. He just needs more and more of that adoration from everyone around him Mm -hmm. and she could never be enough you know as i grow older and (laughs) this so this uh recording was actually banned in our house for a a few years oh because um both my husband and i are on our second marriage so we've both been through divorce Mm -hmm. um at around the same time and so we just couldn't listen to this (laughs) For a while. <laughs> Even though we both already knew it and liked sure. it, uh, he worked on it as a recording engineer. Yeah, so we, we had to put it away. And I recently just started listening back to it. I just like it so much, and I think I'm healed enough mm-hmm. to hear it. Um, but as I got older and had a little break from the show, the line at the very end when Jamie says, I could never rescue you, mm-hmm. which was such a beautiful theme that the show starts with. And mm-hmm. it happens during the wedding and it doesn't have lyrics to it until that moment. Mm-hmm. And when it finally does have lyrics to it, the lyrics are. And I could never rescue you. thought it was so deep and and special when I was younger and now I'm like you yeah no <laughs> you bastard yeah. who says that yeah well and he's you also smash the patriarchy <laughs> but he's also wrong I mean I think it's that yeah no for sure yeah like he's I think that what's great about those those two songs the still hurting and I could never rescue you is they're both wrong about each other in that sort of overarching uh they're both wrong about the relationship. I shouldn't say they're both wrong about each other. They're both wrong about the relationship. That Jamie kept trying to save Kathy from herself. And every time he does something for her, it is he's 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 giving her things. Like the whole Schmuel song is the fact that like we're a couple now and I'm making a ton of money, so you can quit your job and go be an actress, which is what you want to do. And he presents it in this very you know, I give you unlimited time. I mean, the it's, grandiose way. Yeah, it's godlike. Yeah. I mean, it is absolutely as which right. is what the story is about. You know, the story is about a higher power giving someone back their time. If you extrapolate that out, Jamie is presenting himself as God giving her, you know, in unlimited time. Yeah, it's very self-serving. It's very sweet on one level, but it's so misguided and. But it's a savior complex, you yes. know, instead of a white savior, it's a male savior yes, complex. Yes, absolutely. And it is really, it, it is the tragedy of that, that he doesn't, I think, listen to her enough to know what she really wants. The other side of the coin being, they think, though, that, like, Kathy, I don't think, knows what she wants. I don't think she's ever really 
thought about what she wants. She knows what she doesn't want. Every time she expresses something, it's like she doesn't right. want to be like her friend who got pregnant. She doesn't, and she has that list and climbing uphill to her father. I will not be the girl stuck at home in the burbs with the baby, the dog, and the garden of herbs. I will not be the girl in the sensible shoes pushing burgers and beer nuts and missing the clues. I will not be the girl who gets asked how it feels to be trotting along at the genius's heels. I will not be the girl who requires a man to get by. And I... But she never says what she wants. And so I think Jamie, to a certain extent, is like guessing what she wants. And he guesses wildly wrong, I think. Well, and you know, <laughs> what, what's coming out of it is, first of all, some people think that, ooh, you know, Jason Brown accidentally gave away the kind of person that Jamie is. I think actually he very skillfully showed us, because Jamie is not alone. Jamie is definitely an archetypal oh, yeah. guy who oh, gets yeah. spoiled by success at a young age. Mm -hmm. And then whoever he would be with, whether it's Kathy or somebody else, I don't think it would work out. Because I don't know about her, but I know about him. He got married possibly for the wrong reasons and probably too soon in his life, mm -hmm. uh, meaning the character of Jamie. Right. I don't think he would work with anyone, and I don't think she... And it's, it's possible that she wouldn't work with anyone, and then they both need to gain a lot of perspective and figure out their career stuff, and as you said, figure out what they want, mm -hmm. especially for Kathy. So they were kind of doomed from the beginning, and maybe that's why it starts... That's why it's structured the way that it is. Mm -hmm. No matter which end you start with, this was never going to work. Yes. And I never thought about it until we just started talking. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I think that's the, the reason to structure it because it's a circle. I mean, the thing makes right. a loop. And, you know, the, the we end with that I could never rescue you theme lightly played on the piano, which is exactly the same way we begin. And you could imagine this like just endlessly going in a circle of this couple who like I think you're right. The more I listen to, I think that this, this sort of like young college listening to the, like I've heard a lot of college students talk to me about this show and how they blame Jamie for everything and everything would have been fine if Jamie just hadn't cheated on Kathy. And then, mm. and while that is certainly like the most active sin committed in the show between the two of them, they're both not good at this marriage <laughs> in different in different ways no. yeah and i think you're right for i think sure. there's just no there's no universe in which these two people work at this stage of their lives yes, at this especially. stage of their lives yes yeah it just doesn't it doesn't play and i think it takes the it's, it's a very mature show for a show that is yes is autobiographical to a period of life his life that wasn't that far in the past when he wrote the show, it is a very like he he see. I think that the the big difference between Jason Robert Brown and Jamie is that I think Jason Robert Brown took his divorce very seriously and grew out of it. And like you see him in that in the show, showing you all the things he learned about relationships, basically, and how they how they. It's don't pretty work. amazing that somebody with a recent experience and who was still very young when this all even when it ended 
could not just write it for therapy, but write it so well and write these timeless and compelling characters mm -hmm. because nobody wants to see somebody's therapy. That's like a draft you write because you have to, and then you throw it out because nobody else needs to see it. But, right. but this is not like that. Mm -mm. Um, and you know, it, it's scary in a way if two people are artists and they think they can be together, it makes it all the harder. Mm-hmm. You know, if one is an artist and another one is a doctor, then you could have its own problems, but it could also avoid some of these pitfalls. But two ambitious people, I guess, in any field, two people who both want something similar, there will always be friction. And it really takes extra maturity, I think, for two artists to really be together mm -hmm. and not compete. But even, even before you create just... The, the time you need to create it you know mm, like you mm -hmm. must give me time and silence and watch mm -hmm. the children while i create this mm -hmm. it, you know and then it gets into a discussion what's a real job and what's not a real <laughs> job you know like if, if somebody is writing and nobody yeah has produced it then right. it's, it's a hobby clearly right <laughs> so, oh yeah oh wow and it's okay. selfish yeah. It's not like being a nurse. It's not like being a teacher. And it's something that I think, I, I mean, I certainly struggle with that. And I, I imagine you do too, since you just brought it up. <laughs> but it is, it is a, it's a tricky balance. I wonder how much, I will say one thing that codified it for me was when, and I wonder if you had this experience possibly too, when my son was born, I started to think at the time I was living in LA, I was working in web content. And when I say working, I mean, I was getting paid very, very little money. And I started to think like, well, I mean, my wife has a real job and like a real career. So that's great. But like, am I being irresponsible, not giving up this stuff and like finding something more stable to provide the life for our family? And I thought about it a lot. I was home with my son. I had a lot of time to think. And I sort of came to the realization that it doesn't make any sense to me that you would you would have a cycle where you're allowed like we teach our kids to to grow up and they can be whatever they want and then that can't have an asterisk after it that's like until you have kids and then shut up and go you know right. go work in retail it's it's you have to commit to that point if i'm going to raise my son and say you can be whatever you want to be but i gave up when you were born it it doesn't that's not being authentic that's not being true to that statement, I have to show him that you can be whatever you want to be, and that that might mean different things than we all thought it did before we had kids. But it's still the same, you know. I'm still working. I'm still doing the. Thing I mean, and... if even you, as as a male person, are experiencing this, yeah, paradigm, imagine it's amplified, it's, right? <laughs> uh, imagine what it's like yes. for women. Yeah, I would say that I actually I always wanted to teach full time in academia, and it took mm. some time get there and the difference was that when my son was born i threw away my previous parameters of well it has to be in the northeast you know and it has to be close to family mm -hmm. and i said you know what it could be anywhere and i actually ended up in rural north carolina for that reason mm -hmm. so the sacrifice wasn't the giving up of the thing but it was the change of parameters and mm. saying you know what i need health insurance i need a schedule that's set mm -hmm. i need students who will be my babysitters i need a bigger house than my harlem apartment that we had at the time mm -hmm. and so um so that's what motivated that whole thing 
But you did still stick with the the dream, as it were, which is yeah, I think what I'm saying. Yeah, that, yeah the parameters shifted, yeah. you know, but it it's still the like, yeah, but I, the dream stayed. Yeah, and in a way, it's better, you know. Actually, when it comes to writing, um, your teaching job is interested in you doing creative research, right, uh, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, you're not tenurable. So you actually they give you some time and resources, or at least they did before the pandemic. <laughs> Uh, to actually do your creative work. So Mm -hmm. I find that actually very helpful. And I've written more since having a baby slash starting to teach Mm. than I ever did before that. Oh, wow. I've written more since my son was born, I I, I will say. And it was because, in a similar way, the time to write was shrunk. So I found that when I sat down to write... Because I had the time, I wrote. I didn't like you know fiddle around exactly. as much. I, I did the job, and yeah, it really does like focus you <laughs> in, in a very serious way. So when you were when you got decided to you sat in the practice room and decided, okay, I'm going to write a song, and then you wrote a song. Was it really like a flip switch moment? You're like, okay, this is what I do now, or was there a lot more like, oh, that was fun, and then like, oh wait, I can write another song. Was it a little more piecemeal, or was it like an immediate kind of feeling for you? I had these stirrings where I wrote, I wrote a lot of parody lyrics for existing musical theater songs. Mm, mm-hmm. And then I would like write, I didn't know what I was doing, but like I used to be obsessed with the TV show 24 and I wrote a song about Jack Bauer, <laughs> like a comedy song. <laughs> I don't know. And I, I didn't know what I was doing. Uh-huh. I thought, am I writing a commercial? Like, is, is it a jingle? And I think at that moment, it all came together that I think what I want to do is write music and lyrics. And mm. again, as a second language learner, I never dared to think that I could write lyrics. And I still meticulously look everything up and ask 25 people how to pronounce something mm-hmm. to get a consensus, mm-hmm. whether it rhymes and whatnot. But <laughs> I, I think that's yeah, so, yeah, I wrote a song that I, I don't even remember what it was, and then I started writing a musical, and then it took about a year to kind of realize that my life is going in a different direction, and especially after I finished grad school and I started thinking, what now? Mm-hmm. Um, I just kind of slowly walked over the line away from classical music forever <laughs> and into the theater realm. I mean, for the first musical I ever wrote, nobody ever gave me feedback, and it was awesome. I miss those days. I just wrote what I wanted, and I presented it. Uh, but then... Some people in Philadelphia suggested that I apply to NYU, graduate musical theater writing. So Mm. I was like, why should I leave Philadelphia? I'm happy. I'm working in my field. Uh, And then I did apply and I got in. And so we were taught. Mm. I mean, we had amazing teachers. Like our regular teachers are amazing professionals. And also all the guests that came in were amazing professionals. And it was all a jumble in my brain for a long time. And mm. a couple of years after graduating that program, it all started really coming together. Mm-hmm. Like it kind of came through the calendar. And then I've been a member of the BMI uh, Musical Theater Workshop for over 10 years. Mm. And so, and I, I was a Dramatist Guild fellow. So I like, even though it's a little painful sometimes, but it, it's good to put yourself in a situation where you write something and you show it to people and they have opinions about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's essential because writing for the stage, especially when music is involved, it's really not meant to be read. Right. It's really meant to be heard. Um, and so we've 
we've been doing it over Zoom. BMI is going strong. Mm. Um, hopefully, we'll be in person again soon. Mm -hmm. But yeah, having this community of fellow writers um, and sometimes esteemed moderators has been extremely helpful. It's like going to dance class. Mm. You know, you always need an outside opinion, no matter how old you are. <laughs> Yes, no, that's very true. Never stop, never stop asking opinions. It is good to have a circle of people you can trust, though. Oh, that's a really, that's a really handy thing to have. So, what have you? How do you uh, choose your subject matter when you're writing a show? Because you usually write the whole thing, right? Do you do book, music, and lyrics? Am I correct in that, or is it? I do now because of my suburban location and like weird schedule where mm -hmm. I have months where I can't do anything and then months where I can do everything and nobody wants to put up with that. <laughs> um, but I used to collaborate a lot with people. I My first entree into everything was just writing about my own experiences. Mm -hmm. And then I actually had to drop one of my projects because it was so close to me. Because, like, you know, we were just saying J.R.B. was able to write about his personal experience in a very productive and, like, extremely talented way. And for me, it was just so close that I said, you know what, this is destroying me. Mm. So I don't want to write about my own experiences unless it's one, you know, cabaret song and mm -hmm. it's something funny. Sure. So I, I like writing about female protagonists and I like writing complex people. Um a lot of times people ask me, are we supposed to root for this person? And I say, you figure it out. You don't have to. <laughs> you know? So I don't like things that are like, this is the good guy. This is the bad guy. Mm -hmm. um, so I like people who are controversial, who are complex. I like the audience to come out thinking, what would I do? This isn't Christmas. There's no donkey in sight. There's no oh holy night. There's no myrrh. There's no manger. See, not Christmas. This is all Jesus free. So don't worry about me. No, my soul's not in danger. I swear I'm not swaying. I promise I'm not praying to some holy trinity or Mary's virginity. Oh no, I'm not flirting with converting. There's a star of David on top of my tree. So how is this offensive to G hyphen D? Rabbi Bernstein, stop the quizzical looks. So you read holy books. Doesn't mean you can be judging me. I love this. So please don't ply me with guilt. I cannot be rebuilt. I'm not sorry. I'm not budging. I have not become a shiksa. It's not Christmas. So I do, I do want to ask, though, what is, I've told you what mine is, what's your favorite song in the last five years? You know, it's, it's evolved over time, mm -hmm. many times. I mean, I've always been a fan of the next 10 minutes, mm -hmm. just because it's beautiful and you finally get to hear harmony. So that's, that's mm -hmm. musically where I'm at. <laughs> Forever. Will you share your life with me? Forever. For the next 10 Lifetimes from young summers till the world explodes, till there's no one left who has ever known us But I actually really love the finale. Mm -hmm. I know I talked about this earlier today. 
but just arriving at him, you know, sending a mysterious woman called Elise to mm -hmm. close the bank account. Yeah. Who is this? Who is, hmm? We never heard of her. Yeah. <laughs> Is she the one? Is she the one from the other side? Right. Like, who's that? You don't know. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and at the same time, I, I have all kinds of feelings about Elise. You know, her name <laughs> appears once. <laughs> and it's been on my mind. That's true. For, I always you know, assumed that was years. the woman he was in bed with in the previous scene. But you don't know that to be a fact. It could be his Or is assistant. he also screwing Elise, who's oh, a whole other person? because he's a dog. Oh, man. Oh, he's just, is he really this bad? How bad is he? Uh, That's a good question. <laughs> I don't know. And yeah. at the same time, she's like, all my dreams have come true. Goodbye until tomorrow. Oh, Full of hope. So innocent. Mm. And then he says, I'll never rescue you, which is like the douchiest thing you mm -hmm. could say to a woman. Yeah. <laughs> and then it ends, like, as again, as you said, with that uh, full circle motif mm -hmm. that the show started with. And you're like, oh. <laughs> it's... Just, <laughs> Everything just collapses on oh, the inside. Man. Yeah. You no. don't exactly leave, you know, you, you could leave humming the tunes almost against your will because they're super catchy. Yes. But you leave thinking, wow, why why even try? Why be in a relationship? <laughs> you, know? you wanna like in induce suicidal thoughts. <laughs> Watch the end of Company and then go straight into the last five years. Right. Oh, wow. There you go. On a double bill. Yeah. Double bill. <laughs> Doing Company in the last Bobby five years. Bobby full of that. hope. Maybe uh, Bobby and Kathy. If people can get together, like, across time, across genre, across mm -hmm. musical, maybe Bobby and Kathy would make it. So there's there, another Kathy There's a Kathy and Company. company. Yeah, I was about to say. Yeah, that's so Kathy number two, Kathy not number the one two. who's Kathy with a C. New York. This is Kathy with a C. Kathy with a C. And Kathy with yeah. a K. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. There we go. <laughs> yeah, Bobby and Kathy. That's a great couple. That's a power couple, right? The music theater power couple. Right there. <laughs> and then Jamie should get together with Diana. <laughs> oh, there you go. He could be on the horse at the beginning of Act Two. That's how we could get that all together. She is ambitious. She is ambitious. <laughs> I think slightly different ambitions, though. <laughs> slightly different ambitions. No, scratch that. That's a terrible one. Yeah, I was going to say, I think Jamie could go with Joanne. I think Joanne could uh, could whip him into shape Oh, yes, fast. Jamie and Joanne. There we go. Just that... be the sixth husband or however many she's had. And that's the end of that. <laughs> right. Katya, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. Where can people find you on the internet? Um, I have a long and complicated name. But if you go to Instagram, uh, it's Katya, K-A-T-Y-A, Stan. It's a Kazakhstan, but it's Katya Stan. Uh, musical theater spelled the pretentious way, R-E. So, and from there, and so from Katya there you Stan, can get musical to... theater. Uh -huh. And from there you can get to theater. everywhere else. Don't kiss me goodbye again. Leave this night clean and quiet. Want the last word, you want me to laugh, but leave it for now. All you can say, all you can feel was wrapped up inside that one perfect kiss. Leave it at that, I'll watch you turn a corner.
The original cast is produced and edited by me, Patrick Flynn. Please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. It's the easiest way to help the podcast grow. If you like movie musicals, then you have to check out patreon.com slash originalcastpod to learn about our bonus podcast, The Original Cast, at the movies. You can follow The Original Cast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at originalcastpod. Special thanks to our social media manager, Bethany Zalecki. Hi, Bethany. My thanks to Katya Stanislavskaya for coming and talking to me. I'm Patrick Flynn. And I can't. I have rehearsal. Just close the gate